Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. This is Dr. Todd Schlesinger for Dialogues in Dermatology, and today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Tony Fernandez from the Cleveland Clinic Foundation in Cleveland, Ohio, where he is the Director of Medical and Inpatient Dermatology. Welcome, Dr. Fernandez. Thank you, Todd. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we're going to be speaking about TNF-alpha inhibitor-induced psoriasis, a decade of experience at the Cleveland Clinic. Now, this is a, a very interesting topic uh, of the of article as well in the JAD. So, uh, Dr. Fernandez, we'll start out with one of my open-ended questions. I kind of just like to set the stage here. What is tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitor-induced psoriasis? How long has it been known about, and why might this condition be important to the practicing dermatologist? Sure. Well, TNF-induced psoriasis is, in all essence, a drug reaction. It's a rash that is precipitated by TNF inhibitors, and it's a class effect. All TNF inhibitors have been shown to precipitate this type of rash in some patients. And I think the fascinating thing about it is that, of course, the TNF inhibitors are outstanding medications for treating moderate to severe psoriasis, and yet they're associated with this paradoxical reaction in some patients where they actually precipitate a psoriasis-like reaction. And this actually was identified very early in the development of TNF inhibitors. And even in one of the first clinical trials of etanercept, there was a patient who was shown to develop psoriasis as far back as 2003. And since then, through case reports, case series, cohort studies, clinical trials, more and more cases have been established to the point where this is now a very well-recognized reaction that can occur in patients who take TNF inhibitors. And I think why it's most important to dermatologists is that the majority of patients who develop this reaction seem to be patients given TNF inhibitors for underlying chronic inflammatory diseases other than psoriasis. And that may simply be because it's harder to recognize in patients with psoriasis because you already know that they have a psoriasis-like rash. But in any case, it behaves very differently than idiopathic psoriasis. And when patients are being treated with TNF inhibitors for other important chronic inflammatory diseases, it's important for dermatologists to take that into account when addressing this eruption. It's very interesting to me as well. So what prompted you to conduct this research? Had you been seeing a lot of cases come through your clinic at the Cleveland Clinic? And then when you did do this retrospective study, what were the inclusion and exclusion criteria that you used to pick the patients for it? Yeah, so I became interested in this disease or this phenomenon simply because it just seems so unique to me that, again, here we have a class of medications that is outstanding for treating moderate to severe psoriasis. How can they, in some patients, actually precipitate psoriasis? It was just fascinating to me. And at the time when we really thought about doing this study was at a time where probably the TNF inhibitors were at their height. Now, of course, we have multiple classes of biologics, but 
there was a time where those were far and away the best weapons we had to treat a variety of chronic immune-mediated diseases, and so many patients were on them. And we were indeed seeing a lot of patients in our department who had TNF-induced psoriasis. And at the time when we looked in the literature, many of the cohorts that had been reported were really from other disciplines, either gastroenterology or rheumatology. And there were, we thought, few good cohorts that were really coming out of a dermatology department and being treated either primarily or as part of a team by dermatologists. And that's what prompted us to do this research. What could we learn by looking at this disease through the eyes of dermatologists who, of course, we believe are the experts in the skin. And that's really what prompted us. So what we did was really look through our medical record system over a course of 10 years. And in particular, we wanted to identify patients who, during their TNF treatment, had developed new-onset psoriasis or if they had a history of psoriasis, developed psoriasis subtypes that they had never experienced before. And then we also thought to include patients who perhaps had a history of psoriasis, but a long-term remission, so at least five years. And really we did that because a lot of this history from patients comes from their own recollection. Well, somebody told me I had psoriasis and we thought that if patients really had a remission for over five years, there was probably a good chance that whatever rash that was in the past was not psoriasis. And with that type of search, we identified over a 10-year period about 1,500 patients who could qualify. And then we went through those candidates really individually and made sure we thought they fit the criteria. We eliminated patients if we thought really the rash didn't fit psoriasis, if we thought it was really a flare of known psoriasis or another drug reaction, and eventually came to our cohort of 102 patients. Yeah, it was very interesting to me to see the outcome. So diving into the data a little bit, and what you you found is there seems to be a little bit of a female predominance in the patients who were affected by TNF inhibitor-induced psoriasis, do they have a greater risk of forming that condition, forming this drug reaction? Some of the conditions that are underlying are more common in females, but some aren't, such as IBD. It's pretty much an equal. So was there any particular explanation to why the female prevalence was higher or just females see the doctor more often or things that we think about? Yeah, that's a great question. Interestingly enough, in most cohorts that have been published, there does seem to be a female predominance. And this is usually just sort of written off as reflecting, as you say, the sex distribution of the underlying conditions for which TNF inhibitors are usually prescribed. But again, you raise other important points, which is that, well, some of these conditions like IBD and even psoriasis really have an equal predominance of males to females. So our thoughts are that perhaps being a female really is a true risk factor for developing TNF-induced psoriasis. So if it is a true risk factor, why should that be? Well, one possibility is that most of the TNF inhibitors are really given at fixed doses. So 
generally speaking, if we look at men and women, men way more on average than women. So in a sense, women are getting higher doses of most of these medicines per kilogram that they weigh. And perhaps that is somehow playing a role in their risk of developing this reaction. And again, it may simply be that women, when they see this rash, are more likely to go seek medical advice for what is this and to get it treated than men. So we really don't know the true answer as to why females develop this more often than males. Yeah, those are all valid explanations that we, I guess we need further research to learn more about. So looking at the different TNFIs that have been given to these patients, which one was most common and then any specific reasoning as to why that might be the case? And again, in most of the cohorts that have been published, including ours, infliximab seems to be the TNF inhibitor that most often triggers this reaction. But we really don't know if there's something unique about infliximab or if it is just a more common TNF inhibitor that is used. It's certainly used far more often for inflammatory bowel disease and even rheumatoid arthritis than psoriasis. So to my knowledge, there has never been any good study showing that one TNF inhibitor truly causes this reaction more often than the others for some important underlying biologic reasons. So right now, we simply just due to the difference in how often these medicines are used. That makes a lot of sense. Looking back at some of the registration data from the pivotal studies for these drugs, was this a signal back then, or did it just sort of come out in phase four when we exposed a lot more people to the drugs? Well, I think it definitely gained widespread recognition post-approval when, of course, all of us started using these medicines in the real world. But these signals were noticed, again, even in the early clinical trials for the TNF inhibitors that one or a very few number of patients would develop a psoriasiform rash. So this was recognized really right out of the gate for these medications. And something maybe we just didn't see until a lot more, you know, people were exposed. Exactly. I don't think it really raised any eyebrows until people in their own practices started seeing this phenomenon. So looking at the psoriasis pattern that's being seen, what's most common? Is it plaque psoriasis, another subtype more common, any information you can glean from the pattern that you're seeing? Yeah. Plaque psoriasis is far and away the most common subtype of psoriasis that seems to be precipitated in this setting. But really, you can see all the different subtypes of psoriasis. And specifically, subtypes that seem to be overrepresented in TNF-induced psoriasis compared to idiopathic psoriasis include palmoplantar pustulosis, severe scalp psoriasis. We've seen some patients with scalp psoriasis and significant alopecia associated with it, which is not so common with idiopathic psoriasis. And then inverse psoriasis also seems to occur more commonly in the setting of TNF-induced psoriasis compared to idiopathic psoriasis. But we see guttate, we see postular psoriasis, you can see all the subtypes. 
And so is there any role for skin biopsy or is the diagnosis cut and dried clinically for the most part? Yeah, no, I think for sure that there is a role for skin biopsy. I mean, certainly the one thing that is true of all these patients is when the clinician sees the patient in the room, their differential diagnosis, first and foremost, includes psoriasis. But I think it's very hard to tell the difference between clinically idiopathic psoriasis and TNF-induced psoriasis. Most of these underlying conditions that the TNF inhibitors are used for, those patients inherently have an increased risk for developing just idiopathic psoriasis. And I do personally like to biopsy. In our cohort, not all of the patients were biopsied, but a fair number were. And we actually looked at those biopsies in a separate study and compared the histologic features to histologic features in patients with just idiopathic psoriasis. And we did find some differences that we thought were important. And in our opinion, the most useful histologic feature in real world everyday practice is looking for eosinophils in the dermis. Patients with TNF-induced psoriasis much more often had eosinophils present, especially at least three eosinophils in any one histologic section. And we think that that can be a clue that helps the pathologist and the clinician be more definitive about whether they're looking at TNF-induced psoriasis or a patient who's just simply developed idiopathic psoriasis that has broken through that TNF inhibitor. Something to be aware of for sure. And since you mentioned that it's most likely to be more of a drug reaction, it makes sense that eosinophils will be present. So I know there was a lot of emphasis on treatment in the study. So speaking of treatment, what was the most effective treatment or combination of treatments in resolving this drug reaction, TNF inhibitor-induced psoriasis? So this is a very interesting reaction. And over the course of a decade plus of publications, really you can see this reaction on its own take a multiple different courses. So for example, there are some patients who develop this reaction and it may resolve without any treatment. And then on the other end of that spectrum, there are patients who develop this reaction and even if you stop the TNF inhibitor, it may persist. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. What we found in our cohort, again, where we specifically were looking at dermatologists who played a prominent role in the care of these patients, is that the majority of them could have their eruption controlled adequately with topical medications alone. When topicals alone were not effective and other medications were needed, we found that the addition of cyclosporins seemed to work really well. Now, admittedly, we only had a handful of patients who were given cyclosporin, I think five, but all five of those patients had complete clearance of the skin. And importantly, some of those patients had clearance with a low dose of cyclosporin, so as low as one milligram per kilogram, so far lower than you would typically think to use cyclosporin. And we think that's important because it may be able to be used for a longer period of time safely in patients when you're trying to keep them on TNF inhibitors. Methotrexate was sort of hit or miss. We did seem to have better luck if it was used at a higher dose, so at least 10 milligrams, but 15 milligrams was more often used or even higher with success. And beyond that, then it's really then addressing that biologic in and of itself, the TNF inhibitor. 
how important is it to keep the patient on the TNF inhibitor? And if not so important, then switching to another biologic with a different mechanism of action can usually resolve the reaction. Yeah, talk about that. That was good. As the next question is about switching. How often did switching or how effective was switching effective in resolving the condition? But also, what about dose changes as well? Because so you mentioned there might be a dose relationship. I mean, you know, yeah, so, better, you know, which worked out better. So it was interesting that we did have two patients in our cohort who were kept on the TNF inhibitor that precipitated the reaction and their doses were increased and that helped resolve the reaction or at least the reaction resolved in the face of that. So whether it was really that increased dose that did the trick or whether these patients, their reaction was just going to come and go, that's obviously an important question that is very difficult to answer. But nonetheless, we did see two patients where that occurred. I was actually surprised at the number of patients who had their TNF inhibitor switched and the reaction improved to the point where they could continue. Traditionally, I think it's thought that because this reaction is a class effect, switching from one TNF inhibitor to another would not work. I mean, that's really the general rule. But I think we had about a third of our patients who switched from one TNF inhibitor to another, and the reaction improved or resolved. Again, I think the obvious question that is very difficult to answer is, was it the actual switching of the TNF inhibitors? Or were the reactions in those particular patients just meant to come and go quickly, regardless of what you did? I think the important take-home message from that data is if a clinician thinks TNF inhibition is the best treatment approach for that patient's underlying disease, then it may be worth trying to switch from one to another and let that play out. I did notice in the article, which made a lot of sense, that the patients who were taken off the TNF improved, which could be an issue. But I wanted to ask about the latency between when the original treatment was started and the development of the TNF inhibitor-induced psoriasis. So that was reported to be about 11 months or so on median. What can be learned from that longer interval? Because, you know, we think of drug reactions occurring more earlier in the course of treatment, and this is much longer than we would normally anticipate. Is there anything to be learned from that? Are there any other trigger factors that might be causing this to happen sort of later on? So I do think there's something important about that. And again, to me, it's another one of the fascinating aspects of this phenomenon. As you mentioned, most drug reactions occur pretty early in the course of taking the medication. So... To me, this long latency period and the fact that a small percentage of patients actually develop it implies that there probably are outside factors that serve as triggers, just as there are for most autoimmune diseases. We think you have some underlying predisposition, but you need some outside trigger. And I think that's probably the case with TNF-induced psoriasis. We did try to look at that, and the challenge in a retrospective study or even a prospective study is really getting the right data. So we tried to look at factors like any serologic abnormalities, like peripheral eosinophilia or a history of infection or history of other stressors or even family history of diseases. And we did, in our cohort anyway, we found that family history of psoriasis 
was seemed to be the strongest risk factor. So that's an association. It doesn't necessarily imply causality. But that has also been found in other studies as well, in certain genetic abnormalities in single nucleotide polymorphisms have been found in other cohorts of TNF-induced psoriasis that serve as risk factors. And there, we also thought in our cohort that the data supported certain psychological stressors may serve as triggers for this reaction in patients taking TNF inhibitors. And again, we're learning more and more about life stressors and their importance in terms of triggering immunologic disease or phenomenon. So there may be something to it, but although we found associations, we failed to really show causality in anything that we looked at. But I I do think this is an area that deserves more research. And I do think that there are triggers for this reaction. Fantastic. So I think in the last few minutes, because your study, you guys developed an algorithm for treatment, which I think was very helpful to look at. Can you just briefly describe what you've learned and how that algorithm might be useful to dermatologists in the community that may see this condition? Well, I think the most important aspect about dermatologists who see patients with TNF-induced psoriasis is to really take a step back and not focus on the skin initially as much as how important is this TNF inhibitor to the patient's underlying disease. Rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, of course, those are diseases that cause end organ damage. And once there is that damage, it cannot be reversed. So if TNF inhibitors are doing an outstanding job of controlling inflammation and preventing end organ damage, that the goal should be to try to do everything in the dermatologist's power to keep the patient on that medication. So if it's controlling the disease very well, then I think your the, the next step depends on the severity of the TNF-induced psoriasis. If patients just have mild or moderate disease, then based on our data, we think as a first-line treatment, you should try to prescribe topicals. And the strength of the topicals will also depend on the severity of the reaction and the anatomic locations that are affected. In patients who have more severe TNF-induced psoriasis, then of course you may, in addition to topicals, want to think about adding some traditional immunosuppressive agent such as cyclosporin or methotrexate to try to get the TNF-induced psoriasis under control. If the underlying disease is not well controlled by the TNF inhibitor, then I think the dermatologist really needs to have a conversation with the treating physician, whether that's a gastroenterologist or a rheumatologist about, hey, what do you want to do with this TNF inhibitor? And it may be that those clinicians are simply ready to move on to some other strategy if the TNF inhibitor isn't working well. And I think then, of course, taking away the TNF inhibitor should help resolve the eruption. But if those clinicians want to keep the patient on the TNF inhibitor, then again, I think depending on the severity of the rash, you want to go with topicals or topicals plus some traditional systemic agent. If that fails, then I think you need to start looking at either 
if it is very important for the patient to stay on a TNF inhibitor, trying to switch to some alternative TNF inhibitor, or if not, then removing the TNF inhibitor and using a biologic with an alternative mechanism of action or now a number of small molecule inhibitors to try to treat the underlying inflammatory disease. So I think the main question is, how important is it to keep the patient on the TNF inhibitor? And your treatment strategy should all stem from the answer to that question. It's lucky that we have other molecules as well that are coming along as we do our studies. So I think that was a great summary. You know, it really uh, helps me understand the algorithm that you're thinking of for the practicing dermatologist that can identify this condition in their clinic, being at least aware of uh, when to look for it, which drugs are associated with it and whatnot. So, you know, it's been a true pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Fernandez, about this topic. I think it's very important for dermatologists and patients, and we'll look forward to future study as it comes along and the other study you mentioned as well. So thank you very much for your time and with Dialogues today. Well, thank you for having me again. It's my pleasure and honor. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.